from Los Angeles, California. This is the Writer's Strike Chronicles, and I'm Tanya Barnes. Hello, everybody. Today is Wednesday, February 5th, 2008, day 94 of the Writer's Strike. In today's episode, I'll speak to Strike Captain Steve Leva and revisit with Alan Kirschenbaum at the picket line in front of CBS Radford Studios. I'll also receive a bouquet and have a chat with the Mud Baron. But before we begin, I'd like to read you a very long email from Kennedy Goodkey, a listener from Canada. Here we go. Hey, Tanya, just finished listening to your rant about sending background extras to the metaphorical back of the bus. I've seen the same kind of BS here in the world of runaway production, Vancouver. In fact, I can say that I've seen far more union background folk riding the union line beyond all logic and reason. What is with these people on both sides of the line who just don't get that the union rules were put in place for good reasons in order to keep reasonable protections in place, but the rules themselves are not the purpose of their own existence? Would it have hurt to allow you to sit at that table? Clearly not. At the very least, allowing you to sit there until the seat was actually needed by a cast or crew member would have actually met all needs. I shake my head. It's just ridiculous. I'm totally with you on that front. It just makes me mad. I wonder what would have happened if all the non-union extras on that shoot had as a group announced they were walking when the reduction in pay was announced. It's bait and switch. I believe that the change in pay would have been illegal up here in Canada. No doubt that if everyone had announced they were walking, that the client would have found the money in their coffers to pay what they were expecting to be paid. There may have been a client rep on set that could have authorized it. I witnessed a Mazda rep do the same on a commercial up here, which turned into the most lucrative day I have ever had on set. And certainly in the course of five minutes worth of phone calls, it could have been solved. It would be cheaper to pay the additional money then and there than to muster another group of extras while the set sat and everyone else was paid to twiddle their thumbs. I was going to take a moment to comment on Runaway Production. I'm not sure what your position is on the matter, but I know it's been mentioned several times in your podcast, most recently by Valerie Harper. I don't really expect to change anyone's opinion on work disappearing to other places in the world, and I admit that I live and work in the center that benefits the most from it. So let's just agree to disagree on its merits. But there is one thing that I am amazed that I've never heard anyone in L.A. mention, which is that Hollywood is technically the ultimate runaway production. In the teens of the 20th century, where was the vast majority of film production? New York. How much was in California? Virtually none. The folks who were bankrolling Fatty Arbuckle and Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and Mary Pickford realized, you know, we can make a lot more money if we go to the underpopulated West Coast where land for studios is so cheap it's almost free, where the sun shines 12 months a year, so we never have to shut down production, and we're a continent away from the rigors of governmental taxation and control. All of these arguments are precursors to the ones used now for justifying runaway production. I know that generations of filmmakers have passed since then, and it's unreasonable to expect people to live by the examples of an obsolete time. But that's actually my point. Those arguments aren't so obsolete. They've just found new venues and slightly different iterations. I don't think that makes people hypocrites, but it is an important piece of perspective which seems absent in almost all the arguments I ever hear. Anyhow, you are doing good work. We're feeling the strain up here, too. A reporter interviewed me last week on my perspective on the strike in my hometown, and a lot of what I said to him was based on the information I received by listening to your podcast. Signed, Kennedy Goodkey. 
Well, thank you so much, Kennedy, for contacting me. You make some very good points, and I want to address the one about runaway production. When you say you don't know how I feel about runaway production, it's because I'm trying to be a good journalist and to be fair and balanced and impartial. Having said that, I realize it was probably a mistake to editorialize my opinion on my show the other day for many reasons. But one of the most significant ones was simply because I'm told a good journalist takes themselves out of the story. So now, I don't know if I can call myself a citizen journalist. It's clear I have a bias by the mere fact that I'm a member of SAG and AFTRA. So my work here on this podcast is really unclear. What do I call myself? Am I a citizen journalist? Am I a digital historian? A digital documentarian? It's really confusing. Anyway, thanks for writing in and sharing your thoughts for me. For what it's worth, there's a great article in today's LA Times CalendarLive.com section about what it's like to be an extra in Bollywood. If you want to read it, just click on my blog post from Tuesday and you'll find it. Okay, so now let's move on with today's episode. We'll begin with a conversation with strike captain and gate captain from CBS Radford Studios, Steve Leva. Here we go. My name is Steve Leva. I am here picketing, as we have been for the last three months. I'm a strike captain. Oh, you are? Okay. I'm a gate captain. That's why I'm trying to keep these people safe from the cars going in and out. Okay. And we're here to get a good contract that's fair that looks to the future, and most importantly, that has the producers, or let's not call them the producers, let's call them the companies, showing a a little respect for their creative partners here. That's something writers fight for even when we're not in contract negotiations on a daily basis in this industry. We don't have the respect we have in theater, and we don't have the respect we have in, in novels and prose. And we'd like a little more respect. Why is that? I wasn't aware of that. Well, there's a lot of uh, theories about that, but the writer starts it off. You know, partly it boils down in this industry, everybody thinks they can be a writer. (laughs) And it ain't true. You know, if you're a writer, you're a particular kind of creature. And you think in a particular kind of way. And, of course, we get second-guessed all the time in the development process, development hell, as it is famously known. And there are certain executives that are very good at it, actually, that can write notes that can really inspire you. There are executives that you just want to shake your head all day long by what they have to say because they're justifying things. But I don't know. The directors got the big play in this industry with the auteur theory coming from France, even before that, possibly. But it, especially when the studio system ended, they had to turn to somebody. Now, the director oversees everything in the final analysis outside of the producer. And when the film is being shot, he's there. But if you don't have that blueprint, if you don't have someone who solved the story problems, created great characters, wrote nice dialogue, you have nothing. So people will call a screenplay a blueprint. And indeed, it is a blueprint, but it is something more than a blueprint in architectural terms. There's some basis there that's even stronger than a blueprint that everybody builds on. And I think a lot of people are jealous that we have the talent to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a strange way to put it, but say I'm I'm a feature writer, and feature writers are not necessarily invited onto the set of the movie they wrote. It's it's like the other people don't, at that point, want the writers to be there in, in, in case they're afraid the writers might not like what they're doing. Yeah. But really good directors, especially directors who come out of the theater who are used to working with playwrights, usually love to have the screenwriter on the set. Because they understand it's a collaborative process. It's, it's a collaborative process, absolutely. Hold on one second. Yep. Car coming through! Thank you. <laughs> We're doing fine! I think you guys 
We're closed, sure. Why not? Be awful. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's part of it. But writers are also, you know, we're our own creatures. Now, in television, it's different. The writers on a show, especially with the showrunners, they're the power. So they're getting respect, but they're getting respect partly because they're called producers. Okay. But um, writers just want to be treated fairly. And uh, at the beginning of this process, the, the companies came with a 35-page proposal that would have done silly things like take away our uh, advertising credit in newspapers that would have told us that we could only fly coach if we go to a set. You know, silly instead of business class. Wait, are you serious? No, that's absolutely serious. July, when they put in their first proposal, was all this silly rollbacks because they didn't want to negotiate with us until they could negotiate with the DGA. That's That's really... that's, that's That's why they walked away from the table in December. They were waiting to make a DGA deal. Now... If we had not gone on strike and we had not shown our solidarity, not only among ourselves but with SAG, with the Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild, would, have, I think, would have taken a very weak deal and the producers would have tried to ram that down our throats as a template. From day one, we said, that ain't going to work. And because we were on strike and because we got so much coverage, not only of the strike but of the deal points that were important to us, the DGA couldn't take a lesser deal than what they took. So much coverage from where? Please, please explain. Well, from the press, from oh, really? the internet. Uh, Can you cite some examples? Well, the coverage, albeit not the best coverage in the world from Variety or the LA Times or what have you, depending on the uh, reporter. But we started getting good coverage from sometimes from the New York Times, from the Wall Street Journal, and then the internet. Not only what we put up under United Hollywood, but all the posting on Huffington Post. And I'm trying to see what this car is trying to do. Okay. And um, the fansforwriters.com. Fans put up their own websites. I think the companies were surprised that the strike became meaningful beyond just a writer's concern. We really, the head of the AFL-CIO, I think, called us and said, yours is the first important strike of the 21st century. That's true. And that's right. This was about protecting middle-class people because the bulk of our membership earn a middle-class wage and need to survive and struggle to survive just like everybody else. And they may be as good a writer as the writer that gets $3 million, $4 million for a screenplay, but doesn't have the same luck. Who knows? But the point is, writers love to write. They would work for no money if they could survive that way, but we can't. So, we so it's just art for want, art's sake? For you? You know, For everybody. You know, a lot of writers won't say that, but to me, a writer's not a person who wants to write. He's a person who can't help but writing. But they want to show a respect. And in this country, the best way to respect somebody is to pay them a fair compensation, you know, and to give them the credit and to, you know, honor them. Uh, and I think that's what everybody in the creative arts are looking for. Applause. But, you know, not just a sustainable livelihood, I think. And a sustainable livelihood, absolutely. Because there's so many writers that have to do day jobs. Not only in our field, but in the book. I'm a novelist as well. Mm -hmm. And the book trade is rotten these days. Because New York publishing has become like Hollywood, looking for blockbusters. The theater, I'm a playwright as well. Very hard in theater these days, especially in America. But what choice have you got? You do it because you love it. And then you hope to heck someone's going to give you fair compensation. And if the fair compensation is enough and residuals are a bulwark of that in our business, mm-hmm. 
then you can keep writing instead of having to do whatever you have to do to put food on the table. And hopefully that's what you're meant to do, and you'll do something good and entertain people and enthrall people and maybe educate people and whatever we do when we write. Okay, so you've told me you've written for um, a variety of different formats. You've written for stage, or for screen, yeah. for television? Never for television, no. Uh, I've got, uh, I'm a novelist. I have a couple novels published. I've had a play produced at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival oh, in Scotland. Cool. With luck, we can get a U.S. production of that, but Sweet. it's very hard. And in, uh, you know, like any, most screenwriters here, I've had screenplays op, uh, optioned and bought but never produced. Okay. I wrote The Treatment of a Small Little Family film okay. uh, that's been very successful on DVD called The Twelve Dogs of Christmas. And then later I got to novelize that, uh-huh. which came out last Christmas as a, as a kid's book in a novelized form. Okay. So that's, you do, you know, you jump from genres and uh, you jump from forms if you're adaptable because you love it all. You're going to need to be adaptable yep. anyway. Yeah. You just love putting words down on the paper or on the computer screen. <laughs> okay, as we wrap this up, I do have a question for you as a writer. Legacy notwithstanding, okay, technology standalone. What is the more powerful invention for writers, the internet or the printing press, and why? Well, that's a good question. Uh, at this point, I would still have to say the printing press. Why? The, the internet is just an electronic version of the printing press. Anything that took writing where it could be distributed to a mass of potential readers. Mm-hmm. The internet is just the new version of that. Like the computer and word. <laughs> well, I'd say it's know. more... Thank you, CBS TV News! Finally. <laughs> um... So it's uh, the internet is just the, the modern version. The word processor and the computer is the modern version of the typewriter. Those are just tools. Mm-hmm. The process of writing remains the same. Disseminating it, distributing it—that's important. And the internet might be able to do that well. I don't. Yeah. I don't think electronic books will ever supplant printed books. You don't think the Kindle's going to replace paper? No, never. Never. There's still something about a book. They'll be taking books on uh, generational ships to the stars. You know. The, uh, I mean, I like e-readers for certain aspects, mm-hmm. but there's nothing like curling up with a book and the feel of the paper. And the, see, it's such a, it's a perfect delivery system, a, a bound printed book. It's nearly perfect. What an e-book can do is you, if you run across a word you don't know, you can highlight it and hit the dictionary and get a definition without running to another book. But, you know, it's also, it's not quite the same. You know, you can't bend the thing. It's uh, it's not quite the same thing. Okay, as we're in a media blackout and uh, let's talk about the strike coming to a close, do you have any advice to your brothers and sisters on the line? Stay on the line. Until we know have a co- we have a contract and we know it's right, we stay on the line and show our strength. Because if we start to weaken now, just as we're possibly getting a contract, the other side could suddenly pull back, could balk, could decide, wait a minute, maybe we don't have to give on this point. No, we want them to know that we're here, we'll stay here, we're strong, we're solid until we get what we want or a good facsimile thereof. Because you never get 100% of what you want. We understand that. All uh, negotiations are compromised. And we would be more than happy in this compromise if the other side feels fairly comfortable and happy as well. Mm-hmm. And I would hope that comfort and happiness comes from a new realization that we're not their enemy, we're their creative partners, and we got to do it together. It's a great industry. And we should be having fun. You go into show business because you want to have fun. If you don't want to have fun, go into the shoe business. If you want to have fun, go in show business. And people should stop trying to make it not fun. (laughs) I hope there's no shoe business people listening. (laughs) Well, you know, actually, anybody who's in the shoe business who loves it, it is fun. 
everybody should be in a business they have a passion for. Life would be better. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. That was Tri Captain Steve Leva at the picket line in front of CBS Radford Studios. Coming up is Alan Kirschenbaum, whom I interviewed a few weeks ago. Let's roll. I'm Alan Kirschenbaum. Today is Monday. I don't know what else you would call it. Monday the 4th. Monday, February 4th. There have been some rumors and uh, hints coming down that some sort of agreement in principle has been reached in an informal setting. We don't know if that's true or not. But I think that the large turnout for picketing today has something to do with that. I think people are feeling optimistic and that this daily picketing might at some point in the not-too-distant future be coming to an end, and I think people want to get their, people want to get their picketing in now. What's that mean? I think we've gotten into a bit of a ritual at this point, a lot of us, of getting up in the morning and taking a shower and coming out to the picketing lines and showing our solidarity with the leadership, and I think even as maybe, perhaps, things are moving toward their logical conclusion, people, hopefully, yeah. hopefully, people still want to show their support for our leadership and, and for our principles, <laughs> and, and that's what you're seeing today, a large turnout. Okay, now this rumor, this rumor that the strike had, that the... Um that the AMPTP and the WGA had reached a tentative agreement. When was the first time you heard about this rumor, and where did you hear it? I mean, what's news source? You know, you hear it from... It's not from news sources. It's from other friends who hear it from other friends, and it kind of filters down, and nobody's willing to say who the beginning of the chain was. So you're just sort of hearing, oh, somebody was down at strike headquarters, and they said they heard this, and it's all hearsay and, and innuendo. Nobody's willing to say, I heard this from person A or person... Except for Nikki Fink. <laughs> well, that's her job. You know, that's her job, and I think because... We've been disappointed before, and we've gotten our hopes up before. Everybody's being a little bit cautious about the news and sort of taking it a little bit out of time. Okay, the first time I actually heard about it, I mean, I heard rumors for word of mouth, but I actually heard something on the radio. So that's why I was wondering if you'd heard it on Saturday. I started hearing some rumblings Friday night and then some more on Saturday. So I asked you, since we're, it's a media blackout and we really can't talk about much, what can we talk we about? We can't talk about much. It's that we don't know much. Oh, okay. We can talk about anything you want to talk about, but in terms of cold, hard facts, we don't really know anything. Okay. Assuming that this is all true, what's your hopes? I think in a best-case scenario, everybody's hopes are that Patrick Verone and John Bowman and David Young come to us and say, they go to the board and the board says... Well, this is, is, this is the best deal we could hope for under the circumstances. And they schedule a membership meeting quickly thereafter, and everybody gets together. And those are generally pretty heated and emotional meetings in which some people will feel we didn't get enough, and some people will feel it's time to get back to work and put the town back to work. And then there'll be a vote, and generally speaking, the recommendation of the negotiating committee is accepted. So if they do bring us a deal, it's generally accepted. If they don't feel there's a deal to be brought, then we won't have that meeting. But uh, the indications, I guess, 
seem to be that today John and Patrick and David are presenting the particulars of the deal to the negotiating committee and then if there's a sentiment to bring it to the board from that they will and then if there's a sentiment to bring it to the rank and file they'll do that. What's the time frame for something like that? Do you have any idea? I really don't. I assume that the time frame is a matter, you know, they still have language to draft and all that. I don't think anyone's going back to work this week, but I think there's a version of this where some of us maybe go back to work next week. Okay. Any advice for your brothers and sisters on the line and for my average listener who's actually, a lot of my listeners are not in the union and are not in entertainment. Any advice that we need to keep in mind right now? I just think whether this deal comes to pass right now or not, the thing that people really uh, in the guild need to be proud of is that for all the rumors of dissent and all the people who are angry with the guild leadership and all the rumors that you read in the press, there never really seemed to be much of that. If you were down here picketing, the turnouts were good right along. Mm -hmm. If there were a couple dozen malcontents in the Writers Guild out of 10,000 members, I mean, I think it's extraordinary. I think the resolve of of the membership was a is continues to be extraordinary. I think that it's almost unheard of in a you know in a group of people who are by nature malcontents and um, you know grumps and cranks and myself very much included and all my friends. People really believed in this and people still believe in this. And I don't think people were you know. Uh, out of control or overly militant. I just think there was a quiet resolve among the members here that as we move to a different technology, we wanted to maintain what we had, and hopefully the deal will reflect that. I had read in the beginning when I first started this that there were 14,000 members in WGA, but as I go to the strike lines, especially day after day, month after month, I'm seeing the same people. I don't see 14,000 people. Why is that? I mean, and that I'm getting the repeat interviews, it's fine. I, I'm glad to create a relationship and a friendship with people, but 14,000 people. You know, I think there's, it's much like SAG. I mean, SAG has 100,000 members. You think 100,000 people are going to be on the picket lines? There are people who work, and there are yeah. people who don't work. There are people who are in Writers Guild who haven't worked in a long time. There are people in the Writers Guild who work briefly and then never work again. And that's why the notion that we're all successful, wealthy writers is preposterous. I mean, since the strike in 1988, apparently the numbers are something like two-thirds of the Writers Guild membership has turned over since then. And that's only 20 years. So that implies that 8,000 people 20 years later are no longer even in the Writers Guild. So the career of a writer in this town is short. The chance to make money exists, but for most people it exists only for a short amount of time. A lot of people in the Writers Guild work day jobs, the same as a lot of people in SAG work day jobs, and they're not available to pick it. A lot of people are in the Writers Guild as part of their lives, but they're mostly directors or they're mostly actors, and they had one project that got them into the Writers Guild. But their sentiments don't necessarily lie with us here on the right, on the line, although SAG has been very supportive. So I think that what you see here are an extraordinary percentage of the working writers who have had careers. I see on the lines a tremendous amount of people I've worked with, that I continue to work with, that I've heard of, that I've idolized, 
And I think their resolve of those people, of the, that core group, has been tremendous. And I would say that the fact that you see the same names out here day after day is a plus and not a minus. What it tells me is that this is a really small town. That's what it tells me. It is. And the studios, for all the 12,000 people in the Writers Guild, really the amount of writers that matter to them, that do the bulk of the business in this town is probably a thousand or fifteen hundred writers and I would argue that you've seen a very large percentage of them out on the lines okay no I think you're right okay anything as we wrap this up no parting shots thanks for the interest oh thank you it's good to see you again you too That was Alan Kirschenbaum at the Picket Line in front of CBS Radford Studios. We'll wrap up today's episode with a guy who calls himself the Mud Baron. Now, I've seen a lot of obtainium floating around the strike lines. People giving out food, candy, pizza, home-baked goodies, and much, much more. But the Mud Baron was giving out something completely different. Let's find out what that was. I'm Mud Barron with the Los Angeles Unified School District School Gardening Program. I have 526 school gardens, which represent 526 UTLA members that grow flowers. And every now and then, picket signs are great. Every now and then, screaming's really good. But you know what? If you can't dance, I don't want to be a part of your revolution. And this girl dances, and she's got her bouquets. And I just think that, you know, what WGA is trying to do out here helps all of us. So what are you doing? Can you explain to my audience what I'm this is about? I'm flowers out. I'm making folks smile that may not have smiled in the last week. Uh, how about the last few months? Yeah, it's, and, and especially along those lines, you know, folks that, you know, aren't rush, rushing out and buying flowers. Yeah. So, you know what? I have flowers, I have a little energy, and I have a, bit, a lot of heart. So, today, you have me. And he's, he's and giving flowers. out bouquets of flowers. Absolutely. Many bouquets of flowers. We're not doing video, are we? No, we're not. Why? So, you know, smell. That's too bad. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. Really for the podcast, they can smell these really great. Yeah. What kind of flowers are these? They are donated. They are grown. This one is the, the speaking of the New York Giants, this is the <laughs> old fat guy, the old Italian fat guy in New York flower. This is an Al Stramaria. And you think of the Sopranos. You think of a guy named Al. His last name's Stramaria. Al Stramaria. It's the visual at, at home is uh, you think of a tissue box. Kleenex <laughs> uses these as their graphics on all their tissue boxes, oh, but they're gorgeous. They do. They do. They do. Yes. No, there you go. I, I She's very perceptive. You're not a writer? Who isn't? Are you a teacher? I'm support staff. Oh, I see. Okay. I take care of teachers and striking WGA members. You rock. You totally rock. rock. So here's my question to you as we wrap this up. They make it easy. Um, standalone technology, legacy notwithstanding, what is a more powerful tool for writers the internet or the printing press well the conversation I had with uh, another teacher today it's like my kids spend a lot more time staring at a computer screen than they do the TV screen they don't even go there you know if it's not on MySpace it ain't in their face so the writer strike is, is talking about issues that a lot of folks may not understand but you have a conversation with a 17 year old they get it they get it yeah unfortunately the CBS execs don't or do they what's there to get tell my audience what's there to get Every writer creates something, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. You know, I'm, uh, I'm stalking Miss Deborah here because she's a Star Trek writer, right? She told me. She's a Star Trek writer, right? I love geeking out on Star Trek. I don't dress up. I don't do the conventions. I mean, what, what I do at home in the bedroom, we're not talking about that. But what... <laughs> 
you ever notice that old school Star Trek stuff is total porno soundtrack music? Alright, are we having this conversation? No. So, no, I mean, there's no Star Trek without the writers. It's that simple. You know, you know, I can only TiVo these episodes so many times. You know, I need some new material. So you think it's the internet? Your answer is with you. Yeah. There you go. Ruffle the plastic. <laughs> Girls love plastic. <laughs> Diamonds, nah, plastic. So your answer was the internet, is that right? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. and anything yeah. as we no, wrap this up. Seventeen-year-olds, you know. I'm well, old. what's your answer? I don't give a shit about no, seventeen-year-olds. If you make it, you you should own some of it. Okay. That's not brain surgery. If you okay. Sell it. You should share it. Right. Okay. Yeah. So is it art? No, it's, it's no worse than, you know, these are flowers, right? It's no worse than Dupont showing up in Brazil uh-huh. and saying, "Oh, we're sorry, Indian people, we we." own that plant. You can't grow it anymore. What the hell kind of bullshit is that? There's no shows without the writers. I'm going to try to throw you a curveball. In the age of mass... that was the last question. I was, but now... In I got the, pruners. In, I know how to use them. In, in, an era of digital, in, in the digital age, in an era of mashups, is it art or is it piracy? It's a, a postmodern dialogue best had over alcohol. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to the Rider Strike Chronicle podcast, available for free through iTunes. For more information, visit us at www.strikechronicles.com. To contact us, please call 310-439-8754 or send us an email at info at strikechronicles.com.